Greetings, Covenant Hope Church. Uh, it's my delight to draw your attention to God's Word. So if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to be looking at the very end of John's first letter. Imagine with me, if you will, a courtroom scene. And there is a trial going on. And there's a man standing trial who's being accused of murder. And he's faced with the death penalty if he's convicted as guilty or not. And so the defense calls one final witness to the stand. This testimony, this witness is crucial and it matters the most. And so it has been left until the end of the court case. But not only does it matter what the witness has to say, but it also matters who the witness is, the character of the witness. Is he trustworthy or not? And what he says is going to have the greatest impact on the man standing trial. There is an awful lot at stake for him. It is really a matter of either life or death. In a similar way, John opened his letter by saying that he was an eyewitness, an eyewitness to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. He told us that he knew him. He had walked with him. He had seen Jesus with his own eyes. He had touched him with his hands. But as he concludes this letter, he turns to another witness. In his effort to assure Christians of the truth about Jesus, he calls on his greatest witness. He calls this great witness to the stand. And as we'll see, he points to God's own testimony concerning his son and the glorious results that that has on our faith. Before we look at these last verses, will you pray with me and ask God for his help as we study his word? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your word. Teach us your ways so that we might walk in your truth. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Follow along with me as I read from 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 to 21. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one ought, one ought to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The big idea of these verses, these concluding verses to John's letter is this. Confidence in Christ results in prayerful assurance. Confidence in Christ results in prayerful assurance. We're going to see this main idea unpacked in three points, three sections. The first is in verses 6 through 12, and it is God's testimony concerning his son. As we saw last week, John showed us that our love for God and for one another flowed from and was fueled by God's love for us in the gospel, which we have received by faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's our faith in him that overcomes the world, we saw. And now John gives us the greatest support for our faith. He adds further evidence to the certainty of his claims to what he had seen and heard and touched, to what he had witnessed about Jesus rising from the dead. And so let's consider the new evidence that he draws our attention to carefully. The details of these verses are some of the most confusing or challenging in the whole letter. But despite some of the perplexity to them, the main point is crystal clear. John wants us to know with great confidence that Jesus is God the Son who took on flesh to bring life to his people that were trapped in sin and death. So with that in mind, let's consider some of these perplexing details together. John says, this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. John has already himself testified to the truth about Jesus. He's told us that Jesus is God's Messiah or Christ. He's told us that Jesus came in the flesh and that he offered himself as a propitiation for our sins. That is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice 
in the place of sinners. He absorbed God's wrath against sin so that, so that those that were sinful could be counted righteous. He's even spoken throughout the letter of the witness of God's spirit, spirit which confirms in our hearts these truths about Jesus. Just as Jesus said that the spirit would come and would testify and witness to us in John's gospel, we see here that John says this again. But here he turns to two new surprising witnesses by which Jesus came, he says. Water and blood. So what are the water and the blood? And how do water and blood testify? To testify is to declare something, to proclaim it, to bear witness to it. But water and blood don't have mouths, do they? So what does John mean? Well, to be honest with you, Christians have proposed many, many different ideas about what John is referring to. Clearly, the churches that he wrote to, the original readers, didn't have any problem with understanding what he was saying. They had heard him teach before and were probably likely to understand what he was referring to very easily. They didn't need to ask for clarification. But John's words have puzzled Christians even from the earliest times of the church. The earliest writings of Christians have debated what these words might mean. We're not going to consider every single theory out there. But here are just a few for you to consider. Some have suggested that the water and the blood refer to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The water obviously referring to baptism and the blood referring to the Lord's Supper, which the, the juice or the wine was symbolic of Jesus's blood. And in a very real way, baptism and the Lord's Supper do proclaim or testify to the gospel as a symbol of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection from the dead. But I think that that interpretation is unlikely because John, in the context of this letter, has never mentioned the Lord's Supper or baptism at all. And it seems strange to say that Jesus had come by baptism and the Lord's Supper. Others have suggested that perhaps the water refers to Jesus' incarnation. Because as I'll find out in just a few short weeks when my daughter Charlotte is born, Lord willing, one of the signals of birth, physical birth, is that the water sack that contains the baby breaks. Their water breaks. And this is a sign of the birth, the physical birth. They would also point to the blood as being Jesus' death on behalf of sinners. I think that interpretation is possible because, as John has already told us, the incarnation is very important. To testify that Jesus, God the Son, came in the flesh is very significant. He's already argued for that. But when Jesus was born, even the heavenly hosts proclaimed and testified to his arrival. The Savior had been born. And so that's a possible option, one that may be compelling to you. But there's another option which I am persuaded of that persuades me more. If you remember, Jesus' ministry began with his baptism in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And when Jesus was baptized, we're told in Mark's gospel that when he came up out of the water, immediately 
he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven and declared, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God's voice rang from the heavens, testifying to Jesus as his beloved son at the baptism. And this began his earthly ministry. But John tells us that Jesus didn't only come by the water, but by the water and the blood. So not only did Jesus come into the world and begin his ministry, but Jesus completed his ministry as well by his blood that was shed for us on the cross. All that took place around his death testified that this wasn't the death of any mere man either. The skies went dark from about noon till three. The earth quaked, rocks split, graves opened, the dead saints rose from the dead and walked out, and the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two. Even a Roman centurion who had taken part in Jesus' execution couldn't deny it and cried out, Truly, this man was the Son of God. God's Son died to pay for the sins of his people and the forgiveness that they so desperately needed. Some scholars believe that John was here by talking about water and the blood was correcting another heresy which said that Jesus was simply a man when he was born and then upon him during his baptism, the Christ, the spirit of the Christ came. And that before he, before he died on the cross, that the spirit of the Christ left. And so really the Christ never died. A strange belief for us today because not many people adhere to this, but actually Muslims believe something like this. The Quran teaches that they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. Referring of Jesus, to Jesus in the Quran, it says that they killed him not, nor crucified him. But John wants us to know with certainty that Jesus really came in the flesh. Jesus really died in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath for their sin. And he really rose again from the dead to secure eternal life. If Jesus didn't die, then we are without hope. Our sins still need to be paid for. John wants us to know that with certainty. And he's saying that this isn't merely his testimony. Jesus' identity as the Messiah was testified by his baptism. It was testified by his death and it was testified by the spirit of God in our hearts. For he tells us in verse 7 through 8 that there are three that testify and that these three agree. You know, under the old covenant, God's law required that any charge that was brought against a person had to be brought by two or three witnesses. And here we see God satisfying his own demands with providing three that testify to his son. Unlike those who had testified against Jesus at his trial where they all had conflicting stories and different arguments about what he said or what he did, these three testify to the truth about him. And their testimony is one. He really drives this home in verse 9 
where he says that the three combined witnesses are really one testimony. They are the testimony of God himself. The threefold testimony all testify to Christ. And the reason that they agree is because God is behind them. God testified to Christ in history through the water and the blood. And God testifies to Christ today in our hearts through his Holy Spirit that he's given to us. The Father bears witness to the Son through the Spirit. And what testimony could be greater than God himself? None. There is no greater testimony. But what's at stake whether we accept this testimony or not? John tells us everything. Everything is at stake. The stakes couldn't be higher. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony God has borne concerning his Son. The reason that God has given us this testimony to Christ is to produce faith in us, in him. Faith in Christ in our hearts. You know, unbelief isn't a mistake or confusion that should be pitied. Unbelief is sin that needs to be repented of. If you've heard the gospel, you will respond in either way that I've just described. Faith or unbelief. There is no middle ground. You either receive that testimony into your heart and rejoice in Christ, or you reject it. And by rejecting it or ignoring it, you make God out to be a liar. God has taken the stand. He's saying, this is my beloved son, whom I have given for sinners so that they might have eternal life in him. And you're saying, I don't believe you. You're a liar. I have life on my own, thank you very much. But you can't ignore God. You can't put off responding forever. Friend, if you haven't turned to Christ in faith, I want to encourage you to do that today. Do not delay making a choice to put your faith in Christ. Don't make God out to be a liar. Receive the forgiveness of sins that he offers through his son who died to pay for sin and rose in victory over the grave. But brothers and sisters, God calls on us to join him and John in testifying to his son. We have this great privileged position of being ambassadors of heaven. We're his witnesses. We've been entrusted with the testimony of eternal life in Jesus. And scripture in fact says that God makes his appeal through us as we plead with people to be reconciled to Christ. Covenant Hope, let's continue to strive to be faithful in this job of testifying to this news that the dead, those who are dead in sin, can have life by turning to the Son. The results of belief and disbelief couldn't be more starkly contrasted. As we said before, there isn't a middle ground. There aren't many paths to God. There is no other way to receive eternal life apart from the Son. This is the testimony that God has given us. That God gave us life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So if you've trusted in Christ, you have the Son already. And you have life already. 
eternal life. Resurrection life is yours now, today. You don't even have to wait until Christ returns to have eternal life. It's yours if you're in Christ. The age to come has broken into this present age. We're new creations in Christ. And when we know we have eternal life, it bears fruit in our lives. One of the fruits that it bears is prayerful assurance, which is our second point. Prayerful assurance. We see that in verses 13 through 17. Verse 13 tells us why John wrote the letter. He gives us the purpose of this letter. Listen carefully to what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's not writing to people to try to persuade them to trust in Christ for the first time. He's writing to those who have already believed in the name of the Son, so that they would know that they have eternal life, that they would be confident about it, that they would be unwavering in their knowledge of this. The people that John was writing to had been unsettled by the antichrists and false prophets who had sought to deceive them and lead them astray by teaching them false things about Jesus. They'd been tossed to and fro like the waves of the sea by false doctrines. And John wanted them to be firmly anchored in the truth, to be steadfast, to be immovable. Some people think that to be this assured, to have this kind of confidence about our eternal destiny is proud or presumptuous. But it's not, because in fact it's believing what God has said. Certainty and humility are not mutually exclusive. It's not humble to live in perpetual doubt about your salvation. That, in fact, is pride. It's saying you know better than God. God wants us to know that we have eternal life and that that life is given to those who are trusting in Christ, not themselves for their salvation. And pride lies in doubting God's word, not trusting that. John wrote so that believers could have confidence that they know God. We've looked at several of the tests which he used to produce assurance, but here we see that ultimately it's God's testimony which provides the surest grounds for our assurance. It's God's word itself that produces the greatest assurance. So John tells us in verses 14 through 15 that the fruit of this assured faith is confident prayer. The fruit of this assured faith is confident prayer. When we're confident in knowing that we're united to God in Christ, that means that we'll approach his throne of grace boldly. We'll know that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us. And knowing that he hears our prayers, we can be confident that we have the things that we've requested of him. What an incredible and astonishing promise. Just think about that for a moment. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know we have the things asked for. We have the listening ears of the infinite, eternal, awesome God of the universe. The one who made all things and owns all things and rules all things. But you know, this verse is also one of the most abused verses in the Bible. So it's important to notice a few things about this promise. 
The promise hinges on us asking according to his will. In chapter 3, the same promise was made about assured answers to prayer. But there it was according to living by God's will. In keeping his commandments, we saw in verse 22 of chapter 3. But here, it's whether what we're asking for is according to God's will. God doesn't promise to answer the prayers of those who are deliberately and ongoing disobedience to God's will. And nor does he promise to answer the prayers of those that ask things that are against his will. Because prayer isn't some way to try and force our will onto God or to try and bend his will to submit to ours. No, no, brothers and sisters, prayer is the way that we bow our will to his. It's by prayer that we seek his will and embrace it and align our lives with it. Think about the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught his disciples and us how to pray. He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not mine. Not my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. The Lord Jesus, who himself is God, showed us the greatest example of this when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Father, if you are willing, take this cup, this cup being the cup of God's wrath and judgment against sin, take this cup from me if you are willing, yet not my will, but your will be done. God promises to answer prayers that are according to his will. Anything we ask, anything that we ask that's according to his will, he will answer. That doesn't mean that until we pray, we have to try and figure out, is this God's will for me or is this not God's will for me? No, we should pray for all kinds of things, asking God in faith for the things that we desire when we know that they're not clearly against God's will. There are things that we do know, though, that are clearly against God's will shown to us in the Bible. So we don't pray for God to feed our greed by providing riches or fortune. We don't pray for him to feed our pride by giving us fame. John told us not to love the world or the things of the world. But we can pray for our daily bread. We can pray for contentment with what God has provided for us. We can even pray for job interviews or exams to go well, trusting that whatever God wills will be done and his will is good. Jesus prayed that the cup would pass from him. But it wasn't God's will. And so the answer was no. It was God's will that he should endure the cup of wrath and rise victorious from the grave. But one way that we can learn to pray according to God's will is to pray according to what he has revealed to us of his will in his word. So, brothers and sisters, allow scripture to guide your prayer life. Make bold requests for the things that God has shown you in his word. While you're reading the scriptures, turn what you read in the passage into prayer requests for your life and for the brothers and sisters of our church. Let's be a church marked by great assurance, leading to bold, regular prayer in our lives. 
both when we gather together in small groups or all as a church and when we scatter and are alone. Let's be bold in prayer, knowing that God hears and answers prayers. Pray for God to be glorified in our lives. Pray for holiness in his church and in your life. Pray for grace that he'd be glorified as we go about our jobs. Pray for sinners to repent and put their faith in Jesus. Pray for courage to proclaim the good news and be a bold witness to it, to the lost around you. Having encouraged us with the promise that God's listening ear is ours, John goes on to give us a specific example of how we can use this incredible gift of prayer. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. Look there. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There's some complexities in these verses as well, as we saw earlier. But the example that John gives here is very clear and very convicting to me. Of all the things that he could have said to pray for, with the confidence that God would hear and answer that prayer... John turns straight to praying for the good of other people. Not something for his own benefit, but out of love and care for the spiritual well-being of his brothers. When anyone sees his brother committing sin, he says, he shall ask and God will give him life. So first of all, it's clear that John expects there to be sin among God's people. And that it will be evident, we'll be able to see it in one another's lives. God's people, they're not going to persist in ongoing sin, regular, habitual, keeping on sin, but they will continue to sin. And part of the way that they will be able to resist and not persist in sin is because there will be other brothers and other sisters in the church praying for them. They may not even know of it. In Christ, by the Spirit, we have direct access to the Father, but Christians will use this privilege to ask for the spiritual good of other people, especially their brothers and sisters who have fallen into sin. I'm convicted because when I see sin in other people's lives, it's not my natural first response to drop to my knees in prayer for that person. I wish it was. I want that to be my first instinct, but so often my first response is impatience, not intercession. But John says when we see someone committing sin, we should ask God and he will give them life. John says that this sin can be seen, it's observable. So it's not an inward attitude that we guess is sinful in someone, it's something clear. But something less clear is what he means when he says it's a sin that's not leading to death. He creates two categories of sin here and he contrasts them. He says, sin that leads to death. And he says that there is sin that does not lead to death. He says, sin that leads to death. He doesn't encourage us to pray for that. But he does encourage us to pray for the sin that doesn't lead to death. So what sin leads to death and what sin doesn't? I definitely don't want to be caught committing sin that leads to death. Which sins should we pray for? Which sins should we not? 
Well, the first thing to note is that, as John says, all sin is wrongdoing. And he said earlier in the letter that sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. And we know from all of scripture that breaking God's law leads to death in some sense. It leads to spiritual death. All sin leaves us guilty before God and the penalty for sin is death. But John is here distinguishing between different kinds of sin. Sin that brothers commit and doesn't lead to death and sin that leads to final spiritual and physical death in hell. There have been lots of different views on what this might mean. The Catholic Church will talk about uh, mortal sins or the seven deadly sins and they will create different categories but here John doesn't really spell out for us what specifically fits into each of these categories. We need to think more deeply, we need to consider the context of this whole letter and so we can begin to guess what John might be referring to as we do that. In the letter John has spoken in black and white terms about those who deny Jesus, they deny him as the Christ, the Antichrist, false prophets. They'd been a part of the church. They'd said they knew Christ, but then they denied him. They denied his true identity. They denied his humanity, his divinity, and that he was the Messiah, the savior of the world. But these people weren't confused or mistaken. They weren't new to the Christian faith and trying to figure it out. No, they had heard the truth. They were aware of what was being proclaimed by the apostles, but they hardened themselves in rejection of the truth. They consciously and deliberately chose to reject God's testimony about his son and the apostles who bore witness to it. John's also spoken about those who deny that they have sin and continue to practice and walk in regular, ongoing, unrepentant sin. They reject correction and repentance because they love their sin. And so they don't love God. And John has spoken about the love that Christians must have for one another. He's told us that if one hates God's people, he can't love God. So those who persist in deliberate hatred towards God's people, they don't know God. They do not have eternal life, but they will face death. In all of these cases, the sin is unrepentant. So whether John is thinking of all three of these, or maybe just, maybe more specifically, just the hardened resistance of the false teachers who'd gone out from the midst of the church and were denying Jesus clearly as teachers and trying to lead others astray is unclear. But all unrepentant sin leads to death. And that's why John calls us to pray for brothers and sisters who are seen committing sin and the promises that God will give them life. So John doesn't say that we must not pray for those who are guilty of such sins as grie grievous sins as, um, as, he, as I've mentioned that lead to death. He just doesn't say that we should do. He's not encouraging us to spend our time praying for brothers who are in sin that leads to death. All sin is serious and it's all wrongdoing, but John encourages us to pray for those whose sin we see. Let's strive to pray for one another as we see sin in each other's lives. Before we even talk to the person about the sin that we've seen, let's talk to God and ask him to give them life. Let's spend time interceding and asking God to give that brother or sister freedom 
from that sin. To give them resurrection life and victory over that sin. Even as we confess our sins to one another, let's bow our knees before the Father asking for his grace to help us to overcome sin in our lives and to walk in the newness of life that we have in Christ. Let's be zealous for our own and other people's forgiveness of sin. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful short booklet, A Call to Prayer, he says, Prayer is the surest remedy against the devil and besetting sins. That sin will never stand which is heartily prayed against. That devil will never long keep dominion over us, which we beseech the Lord to cast out. The perfect example of this, of course, is the Lord Jesus, who calls us to pray for those who sin against us and prays, encourages us to pray even for our enemies, which he did when he was crucified, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But he models praying for brothers who are in serious sin too. He told the apostle Simon Peter, who would go on to deny him three times, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he would sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Even repeated denial of Jesus was forgiven because he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail and that he would be led to repentance. What incredible grace is in the Lord. What incredible grace that he has for sinners who turn to him for life. Let us be marked by the same kind of love and grace that we see in him. And that we would, as we see sin in others, it would lead us to pray for them. Believing God's testimony about his son gives us great confidence that we've come to know God which in turn blows wind into the sails of our prayer lives. And now John closes the letter by summing up what he wants us to know, what he wants us to be confident of, and he gives us one final exhortation. Let's look at these concluding certainties, which is our third and final point. Concluding certainties in verses 18 through 21. These Last few verses are really just a summary of all that John has been saying throughout the letter. They are not new to us. They're what he knew and what he wanted us to know and be characterized by. And we've heard these as we've read through this letter. He starts each of the verses 18, 19 and 20 with the same words. We know, we know, we know. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. As we've already seen, one of the sure evidences of being born again by God's Spirit is walking in the light, walking in the way that Jesus walked, walking in obedience to God's commands, practicing righteousness, living in love towards God and one another. We're going to face temptations and attacks of Satan, the evil one will try to touch us, but he can't, because we're defended by the one who is born of God. Here, that refers to God's only begotten one, the Son. 
So we can be sure when sin doesn't characterize our lives that we have been born again. And John goes on, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Mankind has been separated into two camps. Those who are from God and are under his power and protection and everyone else who belongs to the evil one. By God's grace through Jesus Christ, we've been adopted from the family of the devil into God's family. And we're no longer under Satan's rule. And finally, we know, he says, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We know what we know Not because we're smarter than others, not because we're better people than others, not because we were born into the right family at the right time, but because he has given us understanding. He has made it that we might know him who is true. How this ought to humble us greatly and lead us to rejoicing and thankfulness for what God has done. You know the truth about Christ because God graciously caused you to know it. He's given you understanding as a gracious gift. He led you to put your faith and trust in his son, who is the true God and eternal life. If there was any doubt about Jesus' deity, here it is, plain and simple. Jesus is the true God. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. He is the one who is himself eternal life. And he grants it to those who he came to save. How wonderful are these truths. How comforting they are to Christians. How empowering they are to those who remain in the world, longing and waiting for him to return, troubled by false teachings and teachers, burdened by indwelling sins. Those things, though, don't define us anymore. Christ does. So by his grace, we can overcome the world, the flesh and the devil. With that in mind, John gives one final, abrupt exhortation. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God, by his spirit, has shown us what is true. He's revealed the life-giving son, the only true God. The one by whom we can confidently approach God as father, knowing that he hears and answers our prayers. So why would we turn to anything else? Which is not true. Why would we turn to a false god, an idol? John's not really addressed pagan idol worship throughout his letter, but he has warned readers to have nothing to do with false ideas about the one true God or his son, Jesus. Because those things lead to sin. They enslave, they don't save. Hold fast to the truth. Walk in it. And live to please the one true God, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. So John draws his letter to a close the way that he opened it. By reminding us of the certainty of what he had seen and heard. So that we would put our confidence in God's testimony concerning his son. Who gives us life, resulting in in prayerful assurance. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your word, which testifies to your Son, our only hope of eternal life. And we praise you for your spirit, which you have given to us so that we might have understanding, that we might put our faith in Jesus and your spirit, which protects us from the evil one and his lies. And we praise you for your body. We praise you for the church, which helps us to make it to heaven. Grant us assurance of the truth. Lead us into bold, faithful prayers. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.